You're listening to the GP Supervision Australia podcast, Alone General Practice, presented by Dr. Duncan Howard and Dr. Simon Morgan. We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this recording was produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present, future and their families. I'm joining you from Awabakal land. My name's Simon Morgan. I'm a GP, medical educator and the education manager with GPSA. It's a very great pleasure to introduce a colleague from Victoria, Duncan Howard. So I work as a GP in inner city Melbourne, a community health setting. I have been a GP supervisor for no 15 years or something like that. Have also worked as a medical educator in the past, various iterations of the training programs and um, have been involved also in some research with NCCC it was mainly. And the reason Duncan's here tonight is that I came across a paper that he wrote 12 months ago. May 2022 it was published. So nearly two years ago now it was published on this very topic of how supervisors can support registrars, the experiences of registrars early in their training as they commence that transition from the hospital to general practice and some of the qualitative aspects of that experience and Duncan will talk to that shortly. So in terms of learning objectives, yeah, we're going to be talking about those sort of key challenges and I know many of you will be experienced supervisors and you might have to cast your mind back quite a while to think what was it like when I started in general practice those many years ago? but very much a practical focus. What can you do as supervisors to support registrars, including key resources? What survival items can you equip your registrar with to help them get through those challenging first weeks? So as I say, the focus of this mini series is on this whole notion of being dropped into this challenging environment as they do on the TV series of Alone what survival tools they need, how can they prepare themselves, how can indeed they be supported by us to best um, navigate that pretty sort of challenging experience. Think to your time moving from the hospital setting to general practice, think of your registrars who do that. What do you see as the most significant challenges for them coming from that hospital environment into general practice? What throws them the most? And maybe, Duncan, what do you see as some of those big ticket issues? I think it's about being on their own, really, for the first time, potentially, like one-on-one with a patient. And they're the ones who are actually making the decision. Like, they're the ones who are saying what should be done. And that sort of sense of responsibility for people is something that I think is a big change for people. Taking on that responsibility, I I mean, I think it is often that. I don't think this is rocket science to understand. We see our registrars, we've been through this ourselves, but just to kind of reflect on it and to stop and think, you know, we've been kicking around for many years, but, you know, imposter syndrome, it's the buck stops with me, isolation in a room. Absolutely that sense of being disconnected from opinion givers and that support, time management, all that organisational stuff. So. It's a pretty challenging time. The patient has more control and power. And I think that shifting from maybe that autonomous approach to a much more patient-centered approach in the community is also a challenge. Some of this talk comes from work we do delivering to registrars. On Monday here in Newcastle, 
we will be talking to a new group of GPT-1s about this very area and we'll be asking them the same question. Of course, they haven't started, so they probably don't know some of this. And, you know, we'll cover a range of aspects and talk through things. So lots of big challenges. We'll be sort of talking to them as we go and Duncan will be presenting some of his work. I wanted just at this point to flag a couple of resources. Many of you will know of a thing called Before the Registrar Starts. This was a document that was put together some years ago by GPSA and it's been tidied up to a degree, but it's really very much a pre-placement checklist. These are all the things that your practice manager and yourself and other members of the supervision team should think about as the registrar prepares to start from a few months before to essentially to the first day. Registrars are also expected to do some preparatory work. The number of registrars that I talked to at induction, and yep, I'll be starting GPT-1 in February, and they all say, yeah, I'll read Murtagh before then, and I say, yeah, I bet you will. And their best intentions are derailed by life and their hospital work and their family. They tend not to have come in bristling with clinical knowledge, but they are asked to do a few things. Now, this is a bit RACGP-centric. I know ACRAM have equivalent resources, but things like Medicare, PBS, drugs of dependence, some of those kind of core things they're asked to complete prior to commencement. But they eventually get there and they walk into the room and this is where you'll be consulting and this is your equipment. And this is when, and I recall my early days of general practice as a GPT-1 in Bathurst in New South Wales, feeling terribly anxious and somewhat overwhelmed. And I did feel like one of the contestants on Alone. It's a program, uh, it's reality TV essentially, and they get a group of 10 people and they drop them individually into these pretty kind of inhospitable environments. In Australia, it was Tasmania in the winter. And they basically have to survive on their own with a kind of key set of survival items and their wits. And they have to obviously find food and sort shelter and survive in the isolation. And this is, I guess, a tongue-in-cheek way of saying, this is a bit like what it's like for registrars. I'm thinking, although we have the academic expert here who's about to tell us, when they walk into general practice and think, my goodness, I'm now alone. I am having to face some of the challenges that, it's a slight stretch, but the, the contestants on this TV show, very much about how we can help your registrar who might see themselves in this really, really challenging position, navigate those first weeks of practice. And this is a great time to talk, I think, about some fabulous work that was done in the area by Duncan. Yeah, well, thanks for that. The paper that we put into the Australian Journal of General Practice in May 2022. So I was employed a number of years ago by NCCC as one of their research people. And when I started there, there was someone talking about the registrar life cycle. And I was thinking, oh, right, yeah, so it's a, a life cycle, yeah. And I, I suppose what came to my mind was the life cycle of like a butterfly or something. So there's this life cycle that goes on. And, and I sort of 
got attached a little bit to that metaphor and thinking about, well, those registrars go through a sort of metamorphosis. They get into a cocoon, the cocoon of, of this training program, and they go through a process where they change from this previous hospital registrar caterpillar, if you like, to the butterfly when they're coming out the other end. So anyway, that was just that particular thought I had at the time. But what I thought would be really interesting to know would be well, how is that for that group of people? What's it like for them going through that sort of process? What did we do in this research? Well, so what we did was we recruited a number of registrars to hear about what was their experience like. So we got a cohort of 12 registrars. They were starting the GP term in the second half of the year. So it was a particular group. So we recruited this group of people. And so they're obviously from Victoria. There was two training programs in Victoria at that time. What we decided was we interviewed them before they started and then we asked them to keep what we called an audio diary. So every two weeks they would get sent a reminder from the main researcher, just a sort of little prompt, if you like, of really what, what was the most memorable things that had happened in the last two weeks. So every two weeks we asked them to produce it was a little voice memo, really, an audio diary of what had happened in the last two weeks and some of their memorable experiences. So every two weeks, like a, like a conversation, I suppose, really a response to that prompt to the researcher. So a whole lot of stories about what had been going on for them, you know, initially prior to coming in, prior to starting. So we heard about their story of how they first came to medicine and how they came to general practice, all that sort of stuff. And then in that first six months so we followed them for six months in that first term every two weeks they would produce a little audio diary why did we actually want to do this so i guess the underlying belief is that if we understand their experience understand what's going on for them their learning experience then hopefully that helps inform us as teachers supervisors educators helps inform the teaching of those registrars so that's the underlying belief that's why we were doing it so how do we do it? Well, so this narrative inquiry approach, so it's based on the idea that as humans, we really make sense of our experience through stories, through creating a story, through creating a coherent story for ourselves. And by, I guess, over time, those stories and that narrative changes as we come across new experiences, but there is a coherence to the story. That's what we did. So we have these pre and post interviews, audio reflections after fortnightly prompts. So a whole lot of data, you can imagine, like a whole lot of stuff, which you know, we tried to make sense of through a qualitative analysis. And really, in the particular paper, we did focus on that early period of the term, because I guess it came out in the stories that this was a really important thing. And there was a lot of anxiety and, you know, it was a really difficult time, obviously a steep learning curve. In the paper, we focused on two major themes. There were a whole lot of different themes overall, you can imagine. And really, I suppose we put them into a learning journey versus a personal journey. I mean, it's a little bit artificial because they're all linked, but the personal journey is, I suppose, based on the idea that as we learn to become GPs, we can take on an identity, the, the sort of professional identity formation sort of idea. And that's one way of understanding what's going on and various ways of understanding of, of course, lots of different theories about learning and change that, that we could have used. But really, we focused in the paper on these two major themes of 
the anxiety and stress of the early days, which is what we're talking about, I suppose, and that weight of responsibility. That's what people were feeling. They were feeling a lot of responsibilities, particularly that first few weeks. So we heard the stories about what happened to them and what was helpful for them as well. What was helping them during that time? And that's what we'll get on to as we go on. So these are some of the quotes from people about the anxiety and stress. I'll let you read them. I don't need to read them out. And that's where that deer in the headlights thing came from. And it's interesting, Duncan, I alluded briefly to my own experience. I'm sure many people can quite vividly remember their first days and weeks in general practice and how challenging it was. As an educator with the RACGP, I see such a spectrum. Some people cruise in and it doesn't seem to ruffle them at all and others quite overwhelmed. And it's always been that sense of, you know, yes, this is an important area, but for you to start to unpack that and explore that is great work. And it's interesting, you know, some of the words, the language that people use is really interesting, but that idea of feeling comfortable, that came out quite a lot. Feeling a bit more comfortable. And it's interesting to unpack that a little bit. What does that mean? So after time, after, you know, six weeks, you know, they're starting to feel a little bit more comfortable. That's interesting. The weight of responsibility as well. So this is a a big thing. This is, and we talked about that originally. So the, this change from hospitals where you're the one, you're the one who's making the decision is one of those things that is a big change from being in hospital to being in primary care. So... Getting back to our alone contestants, and we don't want to stretch the analogy too far, of course, but there is that sense of the guys in the bush do feel fearful and anxious and stressed, and certainly is there a sense of responsibility for themselves, not somebody else as it is in general practice. But we have such a critical role here to support the registrars, and I think this type of work allows us to understand their emotional and sort of learning journeys a bit more fully. What are your tips and strategies to help your registrar survive the first few weeks? There's an expectation almost that a registrar is going to feel some level of overwhelm, of anxiety, of feeling like the weight of the world's on their shoulders, that they don't know what they're doing, that they're dealing with uncertainty. What can we do practically that's going to make a difference? I think it's a really important thing, the feeling of being judged if asking questions, Simon. I think such an important point, isn't it? That sort of speaks to the relationship that we have as supervisors with the registrar, that sort of trusting relationship. They are able to ask us anything. There's no silly questions, that sort of thing. Yeah, and we've done some interesting work at GPSA on this notion, and this is, I think, directly related to this, but around uh, what we call reciprocal vulnerability. And that's about a supervisor over the course of their supervision having a sense of being able to open up about their own uncertainty, their own, you know, struggles, and allowing the registrar, therefore, to have more freely engage in a conversation and, and feel less judged. So that's interesting. But let's maybe talk about some of these things and also point to, to some resources. So one of the things that we have chosen to do with the so-called before the register starts or pre-placement checklist is actually truncated at day one. And that's because I'm trying to make sure that supervisors and practice managers and practice teams can not be confused by multiple documents. So that is very much the lead up to. And then the colleges, both ACRAM and the RSCGP, provide very good thorough orientation checklists. It's clearly understood that such an orientation will reduce anxiety and set expectations. 
and using some kind of checklist is useful. So probably the go-to is your relevant college. And they're long and it's sometimes a bit difficult to get a sense of where the priorities are. So probably is worth going through both from an organisational practice manager side of things, but also the supervisor, clinical teaching and learning side of things and saying, what should we cover on day one? But Duncan, are you any comments on how orientation checklists and this sort of works? It's a useful thing. I mean, you know, people have put a lot of thought into it, but it's, it's making use of, you know, other people's work on it. So it's good. I think I can say with a fair degree of certainty that when I started in general practice, nobody said to me, how are you going? As in, and using, almost using some of those words that, that we presented, are you scared? How's your level of anxiety? Are you coping? Do you feel overwhelmed? Sometimes registrars who start feel enormous weight of responsibility or pretty stressed. Is that you? And, and opening the door to those conversations. Who's doing that? Who actually has that level of conversation with their registrar to not just, are you going okay? And the registrar says, well, I have to say yes, because you know I've, I've got to maintain some credibility here, but giving them permission to say, no, I'm actually swamped and struggling. And this is something that a colleague, Jess Wrigley, who's a GPSA educator as well, came up with, and I, I love it. I, I think this is wonderful. In fact, I'm keen to patent this somehow. So the frazzled rooster scale, and I reckon, and I'm gonna do this on Monday with our registrars, and then maybe in a few weeks, get it out again and say, where are you now? And how have you hopefully gone towards a one? I don't know if that's got much academic rigor, Duncan, but there you go. That's the frazzled rooster scale. I think it's good. Yeah. Help seeking, I think. So, Jared, next week we'll be talking about the clinical supervision plan. ACRAM has a similar document. This is very much around when to call for help, how to call for help, what's the mechanism, what if I'm not here, who's the delegate, all those sorts of really important organisational aspects of help seeking. Mm -hmm. The cartoons are courtesy of my daughter, so just a shout out to her, mm -hmm. which is nice. She can do some illustrations for me. And to point to some fabulous work done, again, very similar to Duncan, a grassroots GP working as an educator in general practice and published locally on the call for help list. And I imagine most of you know this, Jared never intended this to be a sort of comprehensive 80 item checklist that you work through, but really a conversation piece. But certainly if a registrar says, you know what, I can't remember seeing an antenatal patient or I sort of scrape through my paediatrics requirement, but really sick kids worry me, fine, put it in the supervision plan. That's the opportunity to call for help. And that can be, I think, hugely reassuring for a registrar to have that permission, not feel like they're being judged. Oh my goodness, this registrar can't even assess a sick 18 month old, but no, no, I want you to call me. That's, that's expected now. So that can be a hugely sort of reassuring thing. When you schedule your first patient to be seen by your GPT-1, so clearly I think orientation and all these processes differ according to the registrar's seniority. Have you got a policy on that in your practice, Duncan, or is you some sort of rule of thumb? I, I know next week, if I look at the thing for next week, they're starting on Monday. They certainly won't see a patient the first day. Occasionally they've seen one the second day, but I don't think that's happening this time. Thursday they're having... I think of released they're having a program anyway. So it won't be until Friday, in fact, that they see the new the first patient. Yeah. 
I guess I don't know that there's a, a true right or wrong here. And no. in fact, as I interrogate the wording of this question, I'm realising that seeing their first patient might actually mean having somebody booked in and the supervisor sits in with them and they watch them together. And so maybe that's entirely reasonable on the first day. I guess the theme here is just sort of nudging that back a bit and certainly for those registrars who might feel a bit overwhelmed, making sure it's not too many and not too early and it's sort of they're comfortable with it. There's that word again, comfortable. And this is something that we ask our registrars Actually, it's part of a professionalism session and often not till term two, but I thought it fitted quite nicely here. We're talking about registrars feeling overwhelmed. We're talking about registrars feeling this huge weight of responsibility in this new primary care setting. And obviously the nature of patients can contribute to that. And certainly I think staff can too. You're very regularly get about half the hands up for GPT-2s who would see staff as patients and I think that's problematic and again I don't know there's a right or wrong here. I think I tend to agree with you that it can be a bit problematic for a whole lot of reasons but you know there's not necessarily fixed rule about it of course and we're a bit wary of it I know we've had a recent discussion with it at our clinic and decided that's not what should happen. There are instances where new registrar empty books uninformed or just misguided staff member swaps themselves in for their pill script, whatever, and it, it can become challenging. And I guess pointing to some guidance on this from the Medical Board of Australia saying that really, ideally, we avoid seeing family members and work colleagues. For us, that's a bit of a, a given, certainly early on, sitting in with the supervisor. I think that's invaluable. Having said that, obviously, it needs to be a good learning experience and for a registrar just to sit there while the supervisor chips away at a bunch of patients isn't probably what we're after, but it's a wonderful way to orientate registrars to some of those aspects of practice, the computer, the consulting skills, and some sort of example phrases. And I think that is such a powerful thing that we can do as supervisors to equip registrars with a bunch of words that you know, I found this to be really useful. You could try that out when you're counselling somebody around smoking or saying no to an inappropriate request or that sort of thing. I think that's right. So the language we use, uh, certainly something that about with our registrars, and it's certainly something that it was fairly prominent in our research as well, the way people use various language, the language to express things. And I think it's such an important thing. So, yeah, we can demonstrated or people might be able to pick up what we've said and can have a discussion about the way you say things. I mean, this is not necessarily the right or wrong thing, but thinking about how we say things and being aware that the language we use actually makes a difference. It's a really crucial learning experience, isn't it? Absolutely. I have to point out, I think Ian Nicholson, who talked about going from a feather duster to cocker van. I haven't heard that before, but that's wonderful. When is there a time that registers are overprotected? So that's an interesting one too. Like, do we overprotect them? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Like, people have to be feel some sort of level of discomfort. A level of discomfort and anxiety is not necessarily a bad thing. Like, no. that can be a, a stimulation to learning, of course. Yep. And it's that, a bit of that sort of J-curve, isn't it? Like, if you're too much stressed, then it's obviously not good. But obviously some stress and anxiety is it can be a really good thing. 
I mean, we, they need to be safe, but they, yeah, so it's a, it's a real balance, isn't it? And I guess, Duncan, you remind me of yeah. an understimulated board registrar. Well, the zone of proximal development, James. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And then too much overwhelmed, they're just going to close in and not learn too little and they're not going to, to learn because they'll be not stimulated sufficiently. And that's a hard place to find, I think. It's, it's a tough spot. Yeah. So, Duncan, you've looked at this. You actually tapped into these 12 GPT-1s. What did they find helped? You know, and these are probably fairly obvious too, and that awareness of the limits of knowledge and skills. Like, I mean, it's a crucial thing, isn't it? Like, that is about knowing when to ask, when we need to ask for help. And and that's not just as a registrar, of course. That's at any level of our practice. Those limits of knowledge and skills obviously expand over time, but there is always still a limit of our knowledge and skills, and we need to know what that is and that's something that people become aware of and I think we can maybe even use that sort of language with people to make them aware that it's okay like it's fine like we of course we're going to have limits of our knowledge and skills and being aware of that we're more likely to be able to ask for help when we need it that's a sort of fairly obvious thing I suppose and again like responsive supervisor and the importance of that relationship Interestingly, in our study that, you know, there is this obviously different levels of supervision. The level one supervision is when the supervisor sits in or at least is presented the patient by or whoever it is. Like, And when you have a medical student, they have to have level one supervision. They have to present all their patients that they see to the supervisor before the patient goes. And so level one supervision is, you know, it's not practicable necessarily for registrars. But there was one practice in our study that was doing some of that in the early week or two with registrars. And this was a particular sort of practice, but that was very, very helpful for those registrars. They felt very supported by that. Level two supervision is when all of the notes that are made by the registrar are looked at by the supervisor, not necessarily before the patient goes, but hopefully that day. And there was one practice that we had where the, they were doing that in the first few weeks. And again, that registrar felt very reassured by the fact that that supervisor was looking at their notes and making sure that, that they were doing okay. So levels of supervision that I know the colleges are looking at, and I mean, I think they are encouraging us to do a bit more of level two supervision at the moment, aren't they? Like, so looking at people's notes, making sure that things are going okay. And I suppose that's that's not an impracticable thing necessarily. You know, if they're not seeing a huge numbers initially in the first few weeks, so that that's potentially a, a practicable thing. And 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 that has been well, certainly in our study was very reassuring and reduced anxiety for that registrar. The right approach thing is, you know, people learn the right approach being basically good medicine. Like when you take a good history, it's sort of about just going back to basics, you know, taking a good history, doing examination, and then potentially organising a few tests. Like people, when they go back, they realise that actually, you know, they can generally figure out most things anyway. I mean, there's still going to be some uncertainty, but they realise that when they use that right approach, when they're taking a good history, they're, they're learning to be patient-centred and they're taking making examination, they, they learn the right approach and then they feel like they can just generally manage just about anything anyway. And then, of course, 
by repetition, by doing that, they're feeling more comfortable and they're feeling more able to do it. And the last thing was an interesting one because, you know, this was, I think our original research was just before COVID. So, so they were still meeting up with their peers. And then, of course, there was a whole period of time when people were not meeting face-to-face with their peers. And in this, nearly everyone mentioned the value of meeting together with their peers and being able to talk about, you know, what they're doing and their experiences and all that sort of stuff. That was really helpful for people. And that reduced their anxiety as well, knowing that, you know, everyone else is going through this sort of stuff too and hearing about what they're doing. So those were some of the themes that in our study anyway. I'm thinking that your paper really could almost be compulsory reading for a new GPT-1. You know, this is what your peers have experienced. Here's some suggestions for how you'll develop. Take it or leave it, but I think some may find that affirming and and valuable and supportive. And it's nice that we've gone back to the face-to-face meetings as well for registrars. Absolutely. And it's interesting, the learning by doing and repetition, there might be a sense that, well, the fewer patients they see, the less anxious they'll be, it'll be okay. But they do need to see patients. They do need to get familiar and comfortable and develop those routines. So absolutely. And this is where I guess we depart a little bit into the analogy with alone now, but basically each of the contestants, they get a sort of survival, they get some basic things, but they can take 10 items of their choosing. And many of them take a net or a rod or some kind of snare or something to catch animals, but you know, sleeping bags or hooks or various things. Anyway, food, they have to catch their own food. One of the contestants who did very well in the Australian version, actually, he built a canoe or a kayak out of bush materials. And he was down here in Newcastle and was demonstrating some of the things that he brought and that he built, which was quite fascinating, actually. Anyway, if we to use that analogy and think about survival items for registrars, I'll put a few there. Now, you might have others. In fact, you might love to get on the bandwagon and think, well, yeah, what else could I do? A friend of mine last night sent me some writing that he did having retired from his job after years of work. And it was wonderful. And I said, you know, you need to get it published. And this is an encouragement to anyone who does any writing and who's interested in getting something published that even if it's a little bit sort of experimental like this is, the British Journal of General Practice which I received in my post today, I don't subscribe to it. And the article on alone appeared in this month. So from something that was just a bit of a fanciful notion, and it's now accessible to the, the GPs of the UK, which is quite exciting, really. So as I say, on the alone program, many people take a net because they're usually by water and they can fish. But of course, registrars need to be equipped with this incredibly powerful consultation skill of safety netting. And it can be the difference, I reckon, as an educator and somebody who's been there, between sleeping and not sleeping, to be able to effectively safety net and say, this is what to do, this is the likely course, this is what to look out for, this is when you should come back and what to do after hours. And of course, red flags are part of that, you know, things that may indicate more serious illness. The notebook. I think is, again, a really powerful tool for registrars to be able to capture 
things they don't want to lose. And I think they can get a bit befuddled with the results and the recall and the reminder system and how do I do that and maybe you need to teach me next week and, oh, my gosh, that patient's just gone and I can't remember her name. And just having a notebook to document patients of concern, results that need to be followed, that a particular issue, learning needs, those sorts of things. Literally a hard copy notebook, or clearly people might use their phone or otherwise, I think this is a, a lifesaver. In the article, I say it also can double as a pillow. It's not very thick or comfortable, of course, but the notebook's a useful tool. I said ice pick as opposed to ice, but you know, ice does mean ideas, concerns, expectations. Just sitting there going, I don't know what's going on. I'm completely lost. I'm overwhelmed. To be able to say to the patient, what do you think's happening? What are you particularly worried about? What did you want when you came in today? can really, really help direct a, a consultation that's otherwise the registrar list is feeling completely at sea. It is one of the big changes as well from hospital practice. Like We didn't put it in the paper, but there are a number of sort of examples where people realise that they actually, understanding patients' own ideas and agenda and concerns, fears, their own experience, realise that actually they have to take account of that and it's so important to realise what the patient's own ideas and concerns are. It's just one of the big learning experiences, I think, in general practice, isn't it? It is, it is. The iSpeak can also be used to dig out a hidden agenda and another analogy, but that's maybe it is a stretch too far. Yeah, stuck, it's a useful thing too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The way you say it can sound a bit awkward, but I say to people, you know, actually it's quite useful. What did you think was going on? What did you think I might be able to do for you? Or yeah, so various language, the way you use it. The dustpan and broom refers to Roger Neighbour's housekeeping. He talks about having a tidy mind, so being ready for the next patient. So basically that kind of mental dusting. I've finished with that patient, I've safety netted, I've put them in my book, whatever. I'm good to see the next person. But it also refers to a tidy room, or at least, you know, a room that's not chaotic and and I think that can really help a registrar feel organised and ordered and obviously tidy notes as well. Specimen container you might be wondering about, but this really is my attempt at buying a bit of time, the diagnostic pause. And obviously, you know, that wonderful trick that we all know, but registrars may not either be aware of or be confident in doing to say, can you go out and do a wee? And while you're out, what I'm going to do is look up something or have a think or talk to someone and get a bit of a, you know, get a bit of clarity around what's going on. The no button's pretty obvious, you know, not to do everything in the one consultation. And absolute explicit permission to your registrar. People will push you, clearly, but it's completely okay. In fact, it's more than okay. It's, it's appropriate and necessary to curtail things to what I tell registrars, the two most important things on any list like that is what you're most worried about and what the patient's most worried about. The article mentions a yes button, and the yes button is you press when you need to go to the toilet, which I think we're all guilty of not pressing and getting through four hours. And the patient information leaflet is it's what it is, but it's something that I think registrars can be encouraged to use, not just as a useful adjunct to helping a patient understand. But, you know, when they're swimming, when they're absolutely at sea, getting something up on the computer or printing something off and saying, yep, it talks here about, you know, stepping up from the topical agents into 
Oh, there you go. It is doxycycline. That's what I was thinking for your acne management. So kind of using that to help give them some scaffolding around their management and giving them some credibility. And of course, coffee, because coffee is coffee. Now, we do have a community at GPSA, which allows supervisors to talk about various topics. And we've set up a community on this very topic around survival the first weeks. If you don't know that you're part of the community, you can join. This is a sort of sharing of our experiences about how to manage registrars. It's not us telling you what to do. It's a sharing because we're all we're all doing the same job and we all have a all have something to contribute to it. So I think it's I think it's terrific. Credit to you for identifying that this is such an important aspect of the registrar's life cycle. I, I love that image of a metamorphosis of the cocooned registrar, you know, evolving into a beautiful butterfly and as a future GP and actually applying some rigour to this and describing this so well. I'd like to thank Duncan for joining us. Thank you so much for the time in preparing this and talking to your colleagues and peers. Pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervision Australia on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter. GP Supervision Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Program.